game with K&K. Today we had Ashley Wilson on our show. I know her as Badash because that is her handle where I stalk her on Instagram. Um, she is just, uh, you know, one of those, one of like the few women in real estate. I think there are more and more these days, but she's doing things. Um, she's uh, investing, she's syndicating, she's buying apartments, she is doing all the things. She is a regular contributor for Bigger Pockets. She is out there and she is uh, really making a name and building a really great business. So we wanted to have her on the show. Uh, a, because I have been told we don't have enough women on the show. And so I have sought out powerful real estate women to talk to. Um, and I can, I'm happy now that we do have a lot more women on the show. Yeah, honestly, Ashley is, uh, which is cool, very, very smart. She knows her craft. She's very passionate about what she does. She's very focused about what she does. Um, and I would tell you, just by listening to somebody like that, um, if your money isn't with her, it's no, she's no BS. This isn't a game. She's serious. Um, and I think she spends a lot of time, you know, I would say, in the game and a lot of time out of the game, meaning that she definitely does her research, does her homework, studies. Um, you can tell if she's a player in the field, she's very well trained. She's been coached well, whatever you want to call it, because she's polished and she's buying real estate. But at the end of the day, I think with her mindset and uh, what she's got going on, you know, she's going to continue to buy and keep growing this uh, business the way she is. So super exciting, um, really good conversation. It's really cool that we get to um, just interview all these awesome guests all over the country uh, to learn about the market they're in, learn about what they're doing, what is their thought on the you know current economy, what's their market like. So it's awesome. You know, we don't have to sit here and watch news and try to guess. We get to talk to people that are actually like living, breathing this stuff, uh, you know, boots on the ground type. And so this is somebody that. Um, you're just gonna, it's just a great conversation. She's really good and she knows her shit. Yep. So everybody stay tuned for our talk with Ashley. Uh, but before we do that. Wait a minute. You should be giving us some reviews. You should be sharing and. Make sure you're subscribed. Yeah. Click the button. Ding, ding, ding. All right, Ashley, how's it going? Uh, all the way over there in Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's great. Everything's great. Uh, crazy real estate market we're in right now, both on residential and commercial, as I'm sure you know, but it's a fun journey right now, that's for sure. Yeah, the market's really crazy, I feel like, everywhere. Um, I was laughing because we're over here in San Diego, and I think even though the market's crazy and hot here, it's probably like some of the least amount of competition because I, you know, everybody's not flocking from you know, New York and all these other big cities down to places like maybe where you're at or definitely like Texas and Florida are insane. Um, just because everybody from out of state is kind of flooding there. So our market is certainly crazy uh, for sure, but I feel like some of the other markets, it's hard to find a deal. I agree. And I think it's only going to get worse because of all the stimulus that's entering the market. And it's going to push the inflation significantly up. I think we're going to see rates of inflation that we've never seen before in terms of the change uh, from basis. So I think that's going to push people to live in more affordable markets moving forward. 
Yeah, I agree. Th and thanks for coming on. Um, can you kind of just tell us, I was reading about you today and stuff, so um, can you tell us a little bit about your background, how you landed in real estate, and then we can kind of jump in from there? Yeah, so I landed in real estate kind of by accident. <laughs> I think a lot of people do. Um, I think there's a, you know, this feeling that you're born into real estate and it's one of those things that your parents were into real estate, but that's not the case for me at all. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. So I was actually in clinical research and development for GlaxoSmithKline in global vaccine development specifically. So I worked during the last pandemic ironically, and I was making a lot of money, and my husband was a professional athlete, and he was making a lot of money, and we were looking at somewhere we could invest our money to have the highest return, but also in terms of volatility, we did not like what the stock market was offering. So we gravitated towards real estate, and it kind of snowballed from there. So we invested alongside our W-2, and then we ended up transitioning full-time into real estate. Awesome, how long ago did you make that transition? Um, so we started looking into real estate about 12 years ago or started investing in real estate about 12 years ago. And I made the transition full-time into real estate in 2016. And then my husband retired um, in 2000, actually, Sorry, I transitioned in 2014, and he transitioned in 2017. Cool. What did, what did your husband do for uh, sports? He was a hockey player. Oh, cool. Nice. That's smart. It's smart, though, because uh, you're like, what's life after uh, hockey? Or, you know, you got to do something with the money. So that's cool. You guys got into real estate because um, we've had professional athletes on, or we know that... Um, a lot of them go broke or spend their money, so it's cool to be like, you know, you gotta like think beyond the sport or stuff like that. Um, I know we were just talking about the market, but I kind of want to get your thoughts. Um, I was reading a little bit about you. Are you um, are you still doing? I know you guys are multifamily, and are you still doing flips and builds and stuff like that with your dad? Is that still like actively going on? Yeah, so my dad and I started a flipping business seven years ago, and we focus on high-end fold-out rehabs, older homes, and that's still going on in the suburbs of Pennsylvania, but that business has um, definitely shrunk in, in terms of where we were scaling it originally. We changed our trajectory with the flipping market and also to what our goals are. Um, and we focus more on the commercial. Yeah, and then what 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 landed you in multifamily? I always ask that question. I mean, we're in it too. I get it, but I was just curious why you picked that asset class. I believe in multifamily from a three hundred and sixty perspective. So what I mean by that is, I believe in the fundamentals of multifamily. People need a place to live. There is a, a very large delta between the available product that we have on market today and the need for housing. So not only do we have a housing shortage, but we also have a housing affordability challenge as a nation. So that's one reason. Another reason, obviously selfishly, is there is a massive tax advantage to investing in multifamily that a lot of other asset classes don't provide. And then third reason, um, I mean, there's a ton of reasons, but I'm yeah. just giving top three reasons. 
The third reason is I believe it's a very good hedge against inflation. Typically, uh, rents, rents trend with inflation. So, you know, we, I just talked a few minutes ago about the risk of inflation coming down the road for all of us, and I think uh, rents will trend with that inflation. Yeah, I think too is um, I notice you and your investing in areas like Texas and Ohio. I think that's where you have your properties. We were in Texas this last uh, weekend ago um, there and uh, with an investor group, and I was just there. We were talking to people, and I looked up the, you know, what's the minimum wage for the state, and I think it was like seven fifty. And I said it's interesting because we're in California and we're going to hit fifteen dollars. But I looked around and I said, well. I'm sure you guys are going north, right? It's like, because Texas is booming and certain parts are gonna have to go higher. So I said, you know, if, if you have the, you know, the new regime and it's like, hey, let's get the, let's get it up. Let's get the $15, if that happens, that's good for rents, right? So is when you're in these markets, if minimum wage goes up, I'm guessing how it helps you get your, you know, $100, $200, $300 more per unit over the next three to five years. It's an interesting dynamic because on one end of the spectrum, you could argue that rents will obviously go up with a minimum wage hike, but on the other end of the spectrum, your operational expenses will also increase. So it probably will increase at a proportionate rate um, in terms of you're always looking at your income to expense ratio, right? So with respect to the impact of a minimum wage increase or uh, a labor rate increase, you see it um, trickle down on a lot of other aspects of your business. So ultimately, what I always say when you're talking about any type of service-related industry or construction-related industry, it boils down to two factors. One is labor and two is material. And right now, we're seeing a huge surge on both ends of the spectrum. The labor rates, because of supply chain issues, are causing the rates to hike and then coupled that on the labor side of things and you see that we have it's it's compounded by the fact that unemployment is so high so because unemployment is so high you have a lot of people who are collecting unemployment who otherwise would be seeking work and because they aren't seeking work and they're able to collect such high unemployment because their salary or their contracted rate was at a lower rate than what an unemployment can provide, it's causing even more problems overall, which is pushing up the rates. So we're seeing those issues really magnify, and I don't know if a lot of thought was put into that when all of these policies were rolled out um, you know, to help stimulate the economy with the whole situation in COVID. I don't think anyone could possibly think of every possible scenario um, that could be uh, rolled out because of, or impacted because of stimulus coming in. But of course, you know, that's above my pay grade. That's why we have people in those professions who, you know, in government who should be looking at all these different aspects. But that's what I'm seeing on the front line. Yeah, so I was going to ask you, um, when you guys, because you don't live in Texas or Ohio, so you picked those two states. When you went into, started to buy multifamily, can you tell us about like how you identified the states you're going to go into and why? So a typical rule of thumb that I like to tell everyone is a red state or Republican uh, state typically tends to be more landlord friendly. A blue state typically tends to be 
uh, more tenant friendly, that's a very easy baseline that, you know, that way you don't have to memorize each state, whether it's landlord friendly or tenant friendly, you can just know by, by way of voting. Um, but further than that, you also want to look at what is business friendly too, because the ability to conduct business is equally as important. I think also too, just because they vote uh, red and therefore are landlord friendly states, um, there are cities like, for example, in Austin, which is seeing massive appreciation because of the demand and also the migration that's coming in. Um, not the, only the demand on the investor side, but the demand from the actual end user, the tenant, right? But then you look at more stable markets like in Ohio, where it's still landlord friendly, but it's a more stable asset, a more stable performing asset. So what I always like to compare this to the stock market because it's something that everyone's grown up knowing, the whole concept of stocks and bonds. So if you have a market like Austin, that's a stock. If you have a market like Columbus, that's a bond. And they are going to appreciate and perform comparable to those two concepts. There's always risk involved in both. I'm not trying to minimize here the risk that's involved in investing, but I like to be diversified across different markets and different asset classes because of those, those um, two principles. Yeah, I mean, we're in the, uh, you know, we're in the blue state here in California, so it's funny because we meet with, we know, we've taught, we've interviewed a lot, we know a lot of syndicators, and uh, I always say, like, why not California? And it's like, well, um, where do I start? And a lot of them were in California, they got out, but, you know, we live here, so, you know, a lot of people say, look, you know, I just stay away from all the things I hear and what I know, and it's not a red state. And it's funny you say that because everybody that I've been watching, they're like, I'm just focusing on the red states. And it's really not just that they don't really like California, but they want, you know, good taxes, where the money's flowing, where the jobs are flowing, and obviously, you know, more landlord friendly. So um, it's, it's interesting because we're probably more of a stock state, right? A lot of people here buy and the appreciation we've seen people make over 10 years is like insane. But also that doesn't mean that's been, you could have put the money in like Ohio, they would have made a lot more cash with moving on appreciation. So well, the crazy part is, is that we're seeing cap rates, like when you're in Texas, I mean, cap rates aren't that far off from where we're at in California. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, just cap rates are compressing everywhere. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, here we're looking at, it's kind of the same thing as like, we would buy apartments and probably even free to flip. So like you get those quick pops of cash so you can grow your, your cash to go buy bigger, more long-term deals. And so here it's been great for appreciation and building wealth in that way, but cash flows, you know, can be okay. We, we do find lower cash flow, but I think cash flow is, is not so much expected, but at least you get appreciation here. So it's a little bit of a mind shift for sure. Yeah. Do you kind of, we were in Texas. It's funny because a lot of people that are in Texas, we were specifically in Dallas. And a lot of these guys were saying it's, because a lot of these all this California money coming in and it's spreading, you know, we just say California money because everybody just talks about California's going everywhere and the money's coming in. But they're talking about how they feel like there's a shift going on, not all in Texas, but like Dallas, where they're like, I feel like people aren't as they used to be cash flow, cash flow, and now it's more like I they like we're gonna buy 150 a door and it's gonna go to 200. And I said it's funny you say that because that's what we've known in California. Like it just, we're gonna buy this, it's gonna go this, it's gonna go this. Do you, are you seeing that too in like some of the market trends? 
In terms of the yield that you're getting for door, is that what you're asking? Yeah, they, the people in Texas felt like it's kind of changed where people in Texas used to buy for cash flow, but now they're in places like Austin and Dallas, and they're like, Kenny, we feel like the investors are more like, oh, we're going to buy 150 a door, but it's going to appreciate to 200, 250 because all the money coming in. So they're not like caring about the cash flow as much as they used to, like, you know, years ago. So personally, I don't invest based off of that. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a very risky way of investing. Yeah. I think it's very speculative. It's the number one reason why I don't invest in the stock market. So I'm not going to position myself in a parallel a parallel philosophy with, with multifamily. I fundamentally disagree with that kind of perspective thinking. Um, so my play more is in terms of um, increasing the operations of the property and increasing the overall structure of that property, the physical deferred maintenance, because I go after value add type um, deals. But in terms of, um, you know, there's some obvious speculative um, performa underwriting when you're when you're trying to evaluate a property but at the end of the day what I am what I am projecting is that the cap rates will expand as opposed to contract because if they're expanding that means the value is actually going down on my property as opposed to going up on the property um, that to me is a different game and I also don't fundamentally agree that's what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. Um, I look at things a lot differently. So what I look at, um, because my husband's Canadian, I have the benefit of watching Canadian markets and how they perform um, because I talk with his family about, about what's going on in real estate um, in Canada. And one, one prime example was in the Western markets in Canada and um, in Vancouver and, and Calgary you saw foreign capital coming in and what was happening is these ghost towns were being created because this foreign capital would come in, a lot of Asian capital would come in and the, these properties would sit vacant and they would, because they're not used to having um, opportunities in which they can invest their capital in their respective country to create a yield, they'll come in and even if it doesn't appreciate at all, as long as it stays stable, they're, they're happy with that type of capital. And what Canada saw, they saw it on a much smaller scale and they put taxes in place on foreign investors coming in because the businesses couldn't survive these ghost towns. So I saw that in a microcosm type atmosphere and now I look at it in terms of the US, we have a lot of foreign capital, we have capital moving you, you said it at the very beginning of California capital coming into these different marketplaces. And what happens is it creates compression on the cap rate and also creates this whole concept of, well, the property's gonna appreciate anyway, so we'll take less of the cash flow because we'll get it on the back end. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's a really fair way to look at it. I think what will naturally end up happening is a lot of these properties, instead of seeing a forced appreciation that we've historically seen in these major markets, is we'll start to see dying off of that appreciation because what you're also doing is limiting the buyer pool on the back end because not as many people are going to have net worth, liquidity, and experience to purchase. So you're relying on institutional money to kind of bail you out because you're assuming an appreciation at a very 
high rates, which may or may not happen. Um, so unless foreign capital comes in to, to bail people out on the back end, I, I don't necessarily agree with that kind of principle. I do obviously think there will be appreciation if you look historically real estate over the long term has appreciated over the history of track, tracking real estate um, because, you know, as everyone knows, they're not making any more real estate, so the value of yeah. stocks <laughs> go up as the demand goes up, um, which the demand is ever growing as long as our population is growing and more people are becoming aware of investing in real estate. Um, so I think that in and of itself lends to more demand. But I think we have to just be very careful to assume that the value is always going to go up on a shorter uh, time period when you're looking at snapshots, it, it can and does go down. So you need to be very careful on how you're structuring your debt, how you're structuring the equity, make, not making promises that you can exit in five years. You might be in a down market in that you know specific market and you might not be able to exit. So I think people should be very careful about investing with that type of strategy. Yeah, no, I agree. I just, uh, it was just interesting because we, we, you know, here it's happened and like places like, it's kind of funny because everybody's like, this is a crazy housing market, but we live in, you know, California and this whole bidding war that's been going on in San Francisco for 10 years. People are, so People go, this is crazy, and I go, it's been going on in like Seattle and there, but people that live in other places, they like, this is crazy, and I said, it's actually not crazy. The problem is that people that are coming into your state, it's almost normal. So, and they're selling a house for two million, they come in, they're like, oh, what a deal, and they'll just overpay, and it's the same with apartments, they're exchanging. So, like you said, it's it's kind of causing people, what we were talking about that today, my wife and I earlier, it's like, it's causing people to say, oh, this is how I, you know, size the deal and I have to keep to my, you know, core values on how I invest. But they're starting to, like, push themselves beyond that to just get in these deals, like you said, and where they're going to get caught or trapped or in trouble. So what kind of, um, what, uh, just because you are mentioning, when you buy a deal typically, um, are you syndicating and then, like, how much down and what kind of debt, if you're willing to talk about, you guys are kind of doing yeah, absolutely. I just want to say one last thing, sure. though, to what what you were talking about, and then I'm happy to answer that question. But um, at, at the end of the day, it comes down to what you perceive a value to be. So it doesn't mean the value of that property is is your over. You know, I could perceive the value of the property to be one thing, and you could perceive me overpaying, but someone else could perceive it as me underpaying that that I'm getting this deal. Yeah. So it depends on how I am able to operate and maximize the value of the property. And also, too, it's I always think of it, it, it the number one currency in the world is time. It's not it's not a backed by a precious metal or anything like that. It's time. You're trading yep. your time. So to me, um, I have a certain threshold of a deal that I'm willing to do. It's not a matter of me saying, okay, you know, this property isn't worth X. It's more so this property may be worth X, but it could yield A or it could yield B. And if it yields A, it's not worth my time. And if it yields B, it's worth my time, right? So there are properties I've passed on, even though I'm above what they want, I can see the value there, but I don't want to waste my time working on, you know, a highly distressed asset 
that you know pays me fifty thousand dollars a year that's not worth my time yeah right yeah so so that's another thing too because someone else with a different perspective can be like fifty thousand a year i'll take that all day long so so it just really depends on your your perspective but um anyway to your your question earlier um we are syndicating and um we're typically it depends on the deal um what we can get but we're anywhere between a 70 30 or an 80 20 on the gtlp split um in, in terms of debt it depends on whether we're doing uh bridge financing or we're going after agency agency is very tricky right now because of covid so they have holdbacks and they have restrictions and also too when our markets are a little um, gun shy on certain markets and bullish on others so that affects your LTV there um, so it's not necessarily up to us in terms of what type of um, leverage we want to get out of the situation bridge you can still get pretty uh, good leverage on on properties we saw bridge holding back over the past several months while COVID was going on last year but it seems that bridge is rebounding pretty nicely right now yeah uh, and Bridge is offering some very favorable terms in IO, but also too, like the agency with variable rate, that's also very attractive too. So like for example, in the last deal we did an agency variable rate with a rate cap, um, which was much more advantageous for us. Uh, the Freddie Floater? Going Bridge, yeah. Yeah. That's exactly are, what we did. And are you doing IO or? Yep, we have three year IO. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's smart. I know, um, have you ever heard of a guy named, um, is it J.P. Conklin? I don't believe so. Um, you ever heard of Old Capital, like the podcast? Yes. Okay, so yep. he comes on, so he's like the rate guy, and that's what he does is he helps negotiates the um, the rate caps and all that. So he said a lot of people did start stop doing these long 10-year I.O. and things like that, and they um, kind of moved to more some of the uh, – Freddie Mac floaters and stuff because they realized they studied one of their uh, big investors. I think they did 40 deals in 10 years and they're supposed to hold them 10 years. They end up selling four between three and four years and paying massive fee pays. So they went back and said, you know, you're probably better off doing a floater with the cap, you know, and stuff like that. So are you doing IO too? I don't know if you answered that. Three years. You're doing yes, three years, three years IO. Um, I actually was just listening to a podcast about a month and a half ago with Robert Martinez, and one of the things that he said very brilliantly on that podcast was, your um, freedom to exit is one of the most underlooked aspects of a deal, and when you walk into Freddie and Fannie with agency, you have that defeasance penalty. So even though they could be comparable in terms of the IO period, historically what he's done prior to COVID was he would go in with bridge not only for the IO, but he would refinance, even though they were stabilized into another bridge on IO, it helps with your cash flow, it helps you hit prep, hmm. um, but it also helps you to on the exit side of things. So even though you're paying a little bit higher on your debt, um, the cost of that is, you know, your cost of capital is a little bit higher, it's still in the long term is very advantageous. And I thought that was a very um, brilliant ob- observation to make. That's really smart. Yeah, because I think that, I mean, in California, we don't do a ton of agency debt because of that reason. We just have really competitive financing and yield maintenance and defeasance. It's just wild. Um, one of the things I'm hearing on the bridge financing that we found out in Dallas, though, is they have this, like, lockout box and DACA and all these things where it's a little bit 
in, like nerve-wracking that the bank could literally take over your property if you're not hitting the debt yields that they're looking for. Um, are those the type of financing that you're looking at as well? So on all of the lending that I have uh, across all of my properties, there's always a provision on that. There's always, if you're not meeting your deed, um, your DSCR, your debt to recover ratio, that they can come in and do a lockbox. I think that's pretty standard. I, I don't know of uh, a lending um, uh, you know, option that you, you don't have that lockout. Um, and we've done both bridge and agency, and they always have that as a condition um, because obviously the bank is wanting to make sure that they're protecting their assets um, and protecting their liability too. Yeah. So, um, I mean, at the end of the day, I think that really also comes down to underwriting and how aggressive your underwriting is, how, how much you put in at pushing for reserves too. A lot of people are like, what are reserves? I think that's a problem. I um, and they're like, oh, reserves mean like when I prepay to the bank. No, you should also have additional <laughs> operational reserves. Yeah. Like that's a pretty critical component to owning a property. Um, so I think in terms of underwriting and making sure that you have some buffers in place that can help you. I don't know, like maybe if you come across a pandemic one day. <laughs> <laughs> offset this crazy idea of an eviction moratorium. I mean, who would have ever thought two years ago we would be talking about an eviction moratorium? Furthermore, set by the CDC of all, of all groups. So once you understand the principle of why the CDC did, did it, it makes perfect sense. But if someone had told me two years ago the CDC was gonna issue an eviction moratorium, um, I would have been like, um, how could they ever have, you know, the jurisdiction to issue something like that? But here we are. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny. Um, I kind of want to pivot. So women and investing. So um, I think it's really cool that you wrote a book and you're really focusing on that. I think because so we, we do financing for a living, we own stuff, we manage, and so we talk to a lot of people that are buying their first investment property in this, and so I always have like this conversation, and I'm like, well, is your wife on board? Eh, well, and I'm like, well, that's kind of a problem, you know? And I'm kind of like, she doesn't really care, and she just runs the family, and I'm kind of like, well, she should care, she couldn't ball. So I kind of just wanted to talk to you about that. I, I mean, Crystal's just my partner. She's involved. Like, it's decisions. She's there. I want her involved. And I just want to get your feel, feeling on that. Are you, why you kind of started the women investing? And then why is it important that a woman in the relationship is, like, just involved, too, and knows, like, what the hell is going on, you know? Yeah, so there's there's so much to unpack there. <laughs> <laughs> so first and foremost, women are... Um, historically outperforming men when it comes to investments. And women provide a different dynamic to um, assessing investment opportunities that, you know, it's it's one of those concepts, that kind of crazy idea, like you're, you're building a team, let's say you own a, an NFL team, and I told you you can only draft from half the eligible candidates. At, like, what do you think your chances are of being able to win the Super Bowl if you can only draft from half the eligible people where another team can draft from the entire basis? Um, so it's, it's, it's a situation in 
the fact that women are fully competent and capable, but I think it's more a systemic type issue of why women aren't even comfortable coming into this space. And it's not a gender, you know, it's a boys club and women feel uncomfortable. That's obviously a component of it. But I think my personal philosophy is if you look historically, women weren't encouraged to go into the workforce. Fast forward, they were encouraged to go into the workforce, but in only certain capacity. And then now we're encouraged to go into the workforce and actually encouraged to go into specific STEM fields, which we were never encouraged to go into before. So in terms of looking at a woman's foundation of comfort when it comes to mathematics and finance, accounting and investing, you're gonna see a huge drop off as opposed to men who are encouraged to go into econ, finance, accounting, investing, real estate. It's just in terms of you're going to gravitate to where you feel you are good. Just like when you play sports, you say to yourself, okay, I can hit home runs, so I love baseball, but if you strike out all the time, you're not gonna wanna play baseball, right? So that's kind of the concept, is that you want to go into something you feel comfortable and you feel confident in. I think when it comes to relationships and having spouses um, invest together, um, there's two schools of thought. One is, is, you know, know your strength kind of thing, and, and be able to execute on that. But the second side of that and the flip side of that, no pun intended, is the fact that you can be in a situation where you can discuss finances open and freely. One of the leading causes of divorce is a couple's inability to talk about finance and have stress when it comes to finance. And I think it's ingrained in us that we shouldn't talk about it's like finance, politics, and religion at a dinner table. But those are probably the three things that I think if we all talked about, first of all, we would have more respect for each other, we'd be better educated on different things, and we'd be more open-minded. So I'm a huge proponent for having these conversations up front before they become an issue that can disrupt a marriage. I know personally with my husband and myself, we had two fundamentally different feelings about finance. And originally I thought it was just because we were two different types of people, but very quickly I realized that it's because we grew up in two completely different cultures. Mm -hmm. The US economy and the US finance system and your credit system is all based on your ability to pay back debt, which in essence, if you understand what I just said, it means and implies that you were in debt in the first place. Mm -hmm. That was a prerequisite for you being able to pay back the debt. In Canada, it's a complete opposite philosophy. The credit system is based on the fact that we have no debt. So when my husband and I first started dating and I came with him with $38,000 in debt and he had zero debt, so I had 30,000 in student loan debts and 8,000 in credit card debts, I thought I was living the good life, like using <laughs> all these words, all these pay off everything, and you know, we're living in like rainbows and butterfly world, and he was looking at me like I had three heads. He was looking at me like, every time you buy something, add 25% on top of that, because that's what you're paying 25% over because you have a credit card that's charging you 25% interest. Conceptually, I didn't get that. And it was very tough having those conversations up front because 
it was just ingrained in me that you don't talk about finance. You don't talk about your net worth. Now I have a completely different mindset and I'm like talking about net worth to people. I have this totally different comfort with finance because I understand it. And I think that people do not talk about finance because they don't understand it. They feel embarrassed by it. And we got to get over that and start having these conversations, women and men included. It's not limited to one gender. But I think if we start having these conversations, we start bringing both genders to the table, we have the conversations open and freely, and we allow people to learn from each other so they can get into financial freedom together, I think we're going to be better off as a society. I love that. Yeah, I think a lot of women, uh, I think every woman has something to add to their financial picture, and I, I think you're right. It's, it's crazy because even Monty in her office, like she was like scared to pull her credit, for example, and we're like, you just don't. And I remember being young, too. Like, I didn't even want to look at my bank account. You know, you're just, like, nervous to even see. I just don't – if you don't see it, maybe it's not there. But um, we're definitely, like, all about – it's funny because we talk about this stuff so transparently. And it's, like, it's taken a lot of years. And we tell our friends a lot of times, like, do this even before you get married. Because, like, these are the – like, what do you want your life to look like? That includes, like, your finances. What, where do you want to be in 10 years? Where do you want to be in five years? And how are we going to get there? Yeah, no, it's it's. Uh, I, I think it's huge. I think, um, yeah, I, I honestly think, I, you know, not saying this because you're both here, but women are totally underrated. And I think men in a relationship think, like, what the hell do they know about anything? But sometimes they don't even give them that chance, you know, that opportunity to come out and be like, well, here's some money. What would you do with it? You know, let them run with it. So I think that's awesome. I was going to ask you, um, I noticed on your, you know, I know you wrote a book. And you do events and meetups and mentoring. Is that really all, all the stuff you're doing, is that really focused on women and investing? It's not focused on just exclusively women investing. Okay. I'm a huge proponent for women. I support a lot of women. I help women with their growth. And um, I'm a firm believer in um, bringing everyone to the table. I don't exclusively seek out women versus men. Because I'm in commercial real estate, people who naturally gravitate to me are men, um, predominantly. Um, but, you know, I don't think the solution is just focusing solely on women. I think the solution is focusing on everyone and being a role model for other women who might have an um, insecurity about coming to the table. I didn't know anything about real estate 15 years ago. I didn't. I had to learn, you know, everyone says, Ashley, you know so much about real estate. Men and women are saying this to me. And it's because I've educated myself. It's not because I was born into it. It's not, um, you know, because my gender helped me learn. Um, so I just think that educating women and educating men, but also making whenever I'm in a room and it's predominantly men, which it happens to be more often than not, um, also just creating this awareness of you all have a mother, you probably all have a friend who is a female, you all have a colleague that's a female, you may have another relative that's a female, bring them to the table, get them interested. And then the question I always get asked after that is, how do I get someone interested? And the problem that I have found is 
who understand my philosophy or where I think women are coming from, they don't have discomfort with the language and finance, speak their language. So every single person, male or female, have a, has a core genius. So let's say, for example, that woman is very good with marketing. Speak to them about how marketing can impact real estate and bring them in that way, bring them in through that door as opposed to talking to them about finance and numbers and underwriting and, you know, we could build our portfolio by X amount of dollars. That's not going to interest her um, because maybe that's not the language she speaks. Maybe it is the language she speaks. Everyone's different. But I think you have to come at it from an angle in which someone can relate to the asset class as opposed to force feeding one perspective down someone's throat. Yeah, you seem very passionate about it. I love it. It's awesome. Thank you. What's, um, us too, so you're talking to women, and I, I, always, I always ask this for people because I, it's curious, like, we did, uh, so about our industry, we realized that everybody was like, what's the problem you're solving? We do finance. It's like, oh, we give loans. We're like, we had to break it down. We're in this like marketing meeting. And they're like, no, that's not the problem you solve. And we came to realize like we're, pro we're solving the problem of insecurity, right? People that are coming up the first time on buying a home, on buying an investment property, this, they are, like you said, they're insecure. I've never done this. I've never gone through the motions. I'm scared to look at my credit. I don't know if I have enough money. And so I was going to ask you like, and we realize that, so how we talk to people now, because we know that, I know in my head, this person's insecure, like you said, so I have to go there and treat them like that. Don't just say, give me the list, give me this, get it in, let's go. It's like, no, you need to slow down and understand where they're coming from. So I was going to ask you, you talk to a lot of people, you're doing a lot of this stuff. What are some of the common like holdbacks or big questions you're getting that somebody's like, get it, you know, whether it's just like, moving forward investing or life with women or men, whatever, in real estate, like what are you finding a common like theme with everybody, why they're not moving forward and just get, you know, getting it, as we call it, getting into the game? The number one problem and the problem I see with every single person who approaches me, every single one, I have yet to meet a person who wants me to coach them who doesn't have this problem. And it is most succinctly said by a quote, um, I really should know who said this quote, but it's referenced in Brandon Turner's Intention Journal, which is so many people spend their entire life climbing up a ladder to only get to the top and realize it was on the wrong wall. And <laughs> I think that that is so perfectly said about the challenges that people face in real estate, whether it's they can't select a market, they can't pull the trigger, their analysis paralysis, they're jumping around from one asset class to the next, um, it is a problem because real estate naturally attracts people who are typically entrepreneur-like in mindset. So they are typically people who are leaders and they're typically people who also, their downfall is shiny object syndrome. So yeah. I think if more people understood themselves and where they are at in their journey in life and their journey with financial freedom and where they actually want to go and why they want to go there, then if they understood that concept, then they match it with a solution that best fits in real estate. The problem is, is real estate in every single asset class, you can be massively successful and you can make massive amounts of money. So you will not find 
a or have a problem finding someone who's a multimillionaire because of wholesaling, because of flipping, because of house hacking, because of horror, multifamily, uh, self-storage, the list goes on. But the, the true successful people that I have come across are the people who can stay focused and their whole why on what they're doing matches with the strategy and the asset class in which they see. So that is really the challenge. And from an outsider's point of view, it's the same conversation. When I used to do individual coaching, and I did it for two years, every single person would come to the door, and it was honestly, I mean, I could play it on a record button. <laughs> like just play, play the same song over and over again because everyone was facing the exact same challenge. And I mean, that's why people come to people to get clarity um, and put them on the right track. So I'm not trying to uh, minimize the, where someone is in their journey, but that is hands down the most consistent problem that I see across the board. That's really interesting. Um, I think that's true, because like you said, I mean, I think, you know, the thing is, once you start getting into real estate, you realize there's opportunities everywhere. Like, there's so many opportunities. I'm sure in one day you see, you know, so many different opportunities. You're like, well, I could go do that, or I could go do this, or this, or this, and then you have to kind of like, hone it in and go like, okay, I can't pay attention to all these shiny objects. I have to stay in my lane and do what I do. Um, how do you help people kind of get over that or at least find their lane uh, that they should start? I really dive down into who they are as a person first. I dive, like, if, if you want me to coach you with, by the way, I'm not offering individual coaching anymore. So if you're don't call her. don't reach out to me for individual coaching um, because I'm not doing that anymore. It's too, it's, it's, it's too much, too much. But um, the, the thing that I do, to be honest with you, is you have to get really raw with me. You have to tell me what you're making, what your net worth is, and why you're doing this. Like, why did you pick your job in the first place? What's your what's your strategy in terms of what's your ultimate goal and what's your perfect day? I always do this exercise of detailing what your perfect day is and how someone answers that question tells me more about the person than I ever need to know. Because if they answer it very high level, they're one type of person. If they answer it very detailed, they're another type of person. If they answer it with respect to a component of work versus a component of no work whatsoever, Everyone interprets it differently, so I give no guideline as to how to answer the question because I want to see how they naturally think. Can you tell I was a psych major? Yeah. Um, <laughs> then I then I tailor the whole program based on them. So that's why it's very time consuming to do this because you really have to be very raw with me. I'm not going to share with other people your net worth or how much you want to make or how much you need to, how much your expenses are in life. But if you get it down to numbers and take the emotion out of it, you can set up a plan and then you help that person stay focused in building a strategy that works for them. Because everyone's at different points. Some people are, there's really two general buckets. They're either in wealth building or in wealth preservation mindset. But the why behind it and how much you need varies. That's the variable. Or the, those are the variables. So I just try to structure people so I position them for the greatest chance of success because most of the time I have not had a person where I've coached where they came in and they were actually doing the strategy that matched with their goal. 
which is why they were having so much resistance, right? That's why they were in such disagreement with themselves because they were like, I feel like I'm working against the grade. And it's like, well, you are, you know, you're telling me that you want to work less, but you're, you know, you're wholesaling, you know, it's not that you can't set up that wholesaling business with other people doing the work for you. It's just the way you have it currently set up is you're doing the physical door knocking. It doesn't even make sense with what your ultimate goal is. No, that's a, that's a good point. No, I totally agree. Um, Couple questions. Uh, what is your thoughts on the current market? Like, I know we kind of talked in the beginning. What's your thoughts? Where do you think we stand? What's your kind of outlook? So uh, that's that's a big question. It's a loaded so, question, uh, yeah. <laughs> so a couple of things. One is um, we knew pre-COVID that we were overdue for a recession. We yep. were a firm believer that the recession that we were about to have wasn't going to be a real estate spurred recession like 2008, that it was going to be a different type of recession. And clearly, we didn't know it would be a pandemic um, spurred recession, but we suspect, I'm sure you, everyone does, massive inflation going on. I think that's going to be um, very challenging in the near future on how that gets stabilized and what the government does to stabilize it as well. We are expanding into different markets. We were hesitant to expand into those markets pre, um, pre-COVID because we didn't know how the recession would impact real estate, even though we knew it wouldn't be a real estate-related uh, recession. Um, we did believe that it would impact it um, to a degree. Um, so now we're looking to expand in a few different markets that we were looking at pre-COVID. Um, and then we watched the performance during COVID and, and now we're ready to pull the trigger on going into those markets. Um, with respect to our current portfolio, um, the one property is in a very advantageous position to sell despite the fact that we underwrote it as a 10-year holding line in year two. So that changed our strategy on um, selling that property. Uh, so we're trying to finalize the negotiations of that. Um, and then there's another property we're looking to potentially sell or refi. And then our most recent property that we purchased, um, initially we had underwritten to keep the property just performing, not pushing rents or anything like that. But we're starting to see an early rebound um, in that market. So we've changed strategies. We, we work, um, I wouldn't say in a reactive type way, but we have plans in place ready to deploy. And then we let the market kind of, um, guide us in terms of which strategy we deploy, but we don't act reactively. We have the strategies ready to go. So, um, so that's what we're doing in the immediate future. Can you say what markets you're moving into or? Um, I prefer. No, that's okay. No, no worries. No worries. Um, so if you were, and I know you probably get this question a lot because I was curious for your answer. If somebody's coming to you today, they're their friend, whatever, and they're saying, Hey, Ashley, I got money. I want to get in the real estate game. What should I do? You know, it's crazy. It's like they're, and obviously the market's crazy everywhere. It's overwhelming, and people are asking some questions. It's like, am I buying at the peak? Am I going to get screwed? What do I do? 
What's that conversation like with you? I think this is why I'm not a capital raiser, <laughs> um, but I also think this is why people come to me, is I try to figure out what their strategy is too. Um, so I'm not just saying, oh, just give it to me and I'll, I'll you know, invest with me and, and let's call it a day. Yeah. I really try to educate people on the whole concept of what is your strategy um, and let's pick something that matches your strategy uh, with life. Are you a physician or a lawyer that is so engulfed in your profession that you don't have time to actively manage an asset? You want to be passively investing, right? So it's passive or active, and then it's wealth building or capital preservation. So those are the two, you know, then I put them in a bucket. So it's really just a quadrant. There's four options, and I figure out where they are within those four buckets. And then once I figure out where they are within the four buckets, I provide to them different opportunities, not direct opportunities, but I say, okay, you know, um, looking for a passive investment in a market that, you know, maybe in Austin, that would be someone who is wealth building, right? Or, you know, maybe you want to be passive in a capital preservation market. Okay, maybe that's more like Columbus. You know, look for deals in this market or with this operator because that operator typically sees that type of yield. Um, so really, I'm trying to figure that out. And then the last thing I do is I always educate people, especially if I have the bandwidth. Um, I had a call yesterday with someone who had a little over two million to deploy, and um, you know they were interested in investing with me. And then I spend the next half hour telling them why they shouldn't invest two million with me, that they should invest with different operators, different asset classes and different markets to be as diversified as possible. Um, so what I'm doing is, I, I don't want them not to invest with me obviously, but I also too, I believe fundamentally that if I help them grow exponentially, that they will always come back to me because that I provided value. And I don't wanna just provide value on just one return. I wanna provide generational wealth value. That's my ultimate goal. I love that. Yeah, we, we actually, we, it's funny because we like to ask everyone who comes uh, on what generational wealth means to them, but I agree with you. I, we tend to be the same way, just not always selling someone on ourselves, but actually trying to help them do what's best for their situation because that's a relationship for life. Yeah, I mean, you're right because we have uh we do financing, so we see everybody. We have doctors and attorneys and lawyers, and some of them are like, I tell people, they're like, they wanna buy you know, 10 four units, get 10, 15 year fixes, they don't care about cash flow, pay them all off in 10 years, pay their house off, and they wanna retire because they make so much money and that's what they wanna do. You know, They don't wanna have, and if that works for them, that's great. And then like you said, somebody else like, hey, I got time, I can take more of the active role, and I wanna do something different. So. Um, yeah, so Crystal said that I was going to ask you, what is, uh, so we always ask the same question, but what is your definition of generational wealth? I don't know if it's a monetary amount because I think it varies per person on what, you know, their family needs, but I think conceptually it is the ability in which you can provide a legacy for your family. Um, so it's a position in which it's not that I am 
leaving my children with, let's say, you know, $5 million, like hypothetically, right? It's the whole concept that I'm leaving my children with a concept of financial freedom and how to achieve financial freedom in which they will instill in their children and their that their children's children kind of thing. So it's more for me about your education, your mindset. Um, that is more important to me than any dollar amount. So I am very um, intentional about even with my three-year-old and six-year-old, do you want a piece of chocolate now? Or if you don't have a piece of chocolate until later tonight, all, that chocolate will multiply into two. You know, you can create concepts very easily with children to get their mindset in this whole idea of delayed gratification. We live in an instant gratification world right now where you have to get across a message in nine seconds or less or 15 characters, whatever each social media yeah. platform's limitation is. But I think what is more important in terms of life lessons is patience and being able to have this whole delayed gratification that we are definitely losing. I like that. It's funny. I, was, I have to tell you this story because you said that. So there's, a, there's another guy that I follow, and um, he's into delayed gratification. So he's like, you know, we're at the mall, and my kid's like, hey, Dad, I want the new – and he has a lot of money. He's like, Dad, I want the newest iPad. He goes, okay. So he buys the iPad, and they get home. He goes, cool, can I open it? He said, no. Well, why would you buy it? He says, well, you said you wanted it. So he's like, I put it on the counter, and I let him see it. And he goes, cool, when you read seven books, you can have it. Seven books? That's going to take me like two months. He goes, okay, well, it will be right here waiting for you. So every day you walk by the kitchen, ten times a day you'll see it. And he said, I taught my kids. It's like, and then they're like, hey, Dad, we want to go on it. And they start realizing, oh, wait a minute. So seven books. He goes, well, what if I read 20 books? Well, what do you want? I'll get you that. Read 20 books. And he, he actually, but I, I like that you said that the one chocolate, too. I think that's huge. I think. I think it's just not kids. I just think people around us are like, I don't know how to save for, uh, you know, to buy a building or to invest in real estate or anything. It's like, well, have you looked at your finances? Have you had the conversation? Did you really need the newest iPhone, all this? And I know you're even, when you talk to people, well, you, they make the money. How are you not saving it? It's just, it's, it's unbelievable. We're just so into this. I need it now. I need it now. Couldn't agree more, obviously. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, too, um, your book. And um, writing it and just that. So the only woman in the room, can you kind of tell us like the title and kind of, I didn't obviously haven't read it, but what's it about and how you came up with the title and the book and just about writing it? So I attended Jay Van Horn's Mid-Atlantic Summit about three years ago. And during that summit, the co-founders of the real estate investor community, Liz Faircloth and Jessica Gelly, they asked all women in attendance to have lunch together. And it was just two tables pulled together, 16 women sat at these two tables. And despite the fact that I went to an all-boys high school, as a senior in college, I lived with all boys in the house, like 13 different boys. It was the first time that really smacked me across the face and they were like, there's no women here. And out of 450 attendees, you know, 16 women were sitting at these two tables. And I just thought to myself, this is absurd. Um, so I all of a sudden became aware of how few women there were in real estate. And I would go to these meetups and I would be literally the only woman in the room. So on the way home from the conference, my husband and 
And over the next year, I secretively interviewed all these women to find out about their real estate journey, where they were uh, at today, and how they got there. And then I picked 19 other women in which I wanted to showcase their story and give them a platform in which their voice could be heard. I noticed that women were not asked to be the keynote speaker, but I noticed that keynote speakers always had a book behind them. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to give 19 other women a book behind their name so they can be a keynote speaker and they can be a role model for the next generation. So I picked women that were in all different asset classes in all different parts of their journey. It's not like these women are all, you know, seven, eight figure women. I mean, some of them definitely are, but there are also some people who are new in real estate, but their voice is just as important as everyone else's voice in, in the crowd. So um, it was really, really important to me, especially having two daughters to create something. You know, we just talked about legacy um, and generational wealth. That to me is providing generational wealth for the future. Um, so it was, it, it's become bigger than I ever thought it would become. And to be perfectly honest with you, I think there's two sentences in the book talking about women in real estate, but everything else is just strictly real estate. And it's either inspiration or knowledge-based information. Um, I get more feedback from men than I do from women yeah. about this book. It's incredible. But I can't believe how many men are reading this book and then giving it as gifts to women in their immediate circle to get them into real estate. Awesome. So um, I'm just, I'm literally, I, I feel like I'm more grateful for the women who were in the book than they are of me providing the opportunity to, you know, us all get together and write the book. I'm just really, really um, proud and honored that the women were willing to share their stories because some of these stories are just, I mean, you'll laugh, you'll cry, it, everything in between um, because of how raw these women were with their journey. So it's pretty impressive. That's really cool. Well, cool. Well, um, congratulations on all your success. Um, I can tell you're a very passionate person, so that's awesome. And I think what you're doing is awesome. We love real estate. We're obsessed and passionate about it. I, we think it's the best thing you know, ever. So I know you probably have your mutual feelings. So it's cool to talk to somebody that's uh, not a man in real estate. It's a woman, but that's passionate and that she's my prince that knows your shit so it's cool so you know i just wanted to leave with congrats thanks for coming on and um you know i keep doing what you're doing thank you so much for having me on it was a pleasure speaking with you both yeah thank you yeah this podcast is a part of the c-suite radio network for more top business podcasts visit c-suiteradio.com